times that all about. And it's kind of a, it's a technical word. It shows up in the Bible a number of times. And if you can see right there, it's the first option right under the thematic clusters. So the economy of salvation, in the sense that I'm using it again, it shows up in these two passages, in 1 Timothy 1, four, and then in Ephesians 3.9. So it's a New Testament word. It's a specifically Christian word. And it has to do with basically the sense is this. We get our word economy, our modern word economy from it. Okay, so our modern English word, the economy has to do with how we uh, imagine the monetary infrastructure of a given country. It's like a house. And we manage that house a certain way. That's the stuff, that's the science of economics. That's how we use it in the modern sense of the word. But originally, it's a Greek word and it has to do with household management. That's literally what it has to do. Okay, so if you were uh, if you were a steward of a house and you were responsible for, for taking care of a very wealthy man's uh, house and his property, you would um, be responsible for giving food to the animals and for paying the servants and for making sure this part of the property was taken care of and so forth and so on. The bills were paid. And so you'd be a steward and that would be uh, an economic role, if you will, that you were playing. Now it can also be used in a broader sense than just generally household management. And so if we imagine the universe, all creation is a household and God is a household manager. So how does God manage the universe? How does he manage uh, the cosmos? And so that's what we mean when we talk about the economy of salvation. God created the world. He's the big household owner. He's the manager. And he's got everything arranged really, really wisely. He's the best household manager. He's the best economist, if you will, that you could possibly find. And, uh, and I, I hope that we can see this as we go on and as we study the Bible and as we reflect on all of history, how God manages history in a supremely wise way. And He does it all for the salvation of human beings whom He has created in His image and likeness, whom He loves, and who He wants them to, to have an eternal relationship of love with Him for eternity. And so He manages this cosmic household all for the good of the individual members. That's us. And He does it across all of history. And he does it with supreme wisdom and intelligence. And sometimes we, because we have a very limited perspective, because we live in just a slice of time. You know, we live from, in my case, 1977 to the year 2000, I don't know, 50, right? I don't know. So that's a small slice of salvation history of the economy of salvation that I take up. And then I'm used to, you know, I'm used to just dealing with things on a on a very kind of day-to-day uh, -day basis. So I don't see the big picture. And, and, and it's very difficult to see the big picture. So it's wonderful that God has revealed the big picture to us, the wisdom of the mystery of the economy of salvation. He's revealed that to us in the Bible, through the Bible, and through our Catholic faith and tradition more generally. So hopefully we can start to see that kind of wisdom because when we live our lives from a moment-to-moment -moment basis, sometimes we don't really appreciate it. But when we take the time to slow down and think and try to lift up our hearts and our minds and we meditate and we think from God's perspective, we begin to see the wisdom 
by which he governs the entire universe. So that's what this whole thing of the economy of salvation is all about. Alright? Now, for your tools, what I recommend is uh, the Revised Standard Version uh, Catholic Edition, and you know I'm probably going to buy a number of these. Uh, now, you guys probably have the New American Bible, and that's fine. You can use that. But it's it, just for the sake of consistency and unity, you know, because I'll probably be quoting out of this translation quite a bit. So just for the sake of unity and consistency, it'd be good to get a Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. And like I said, I'll probably order a, a dozen or two dozen and just have them on hand so you guys can use them when you're here. But if you want to... Okay, and this is, everybody knows, this is the difference between Protestants and Catholics. The Protestants have this, uh, what we think of as kind of an unfounded confidence in the ability for the average person just to open up the Bible and suddenly it all makes sense. They've got the whole plan of salvation down and they know everything just like that. And for, for we understand as Catholics that the Bible does illumine our hearts and our minds and it has a spiritual power to give us wisdom. And sometimes it becomes incredibly luminous by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's not guaranteed. We need guidance. We need experience. We need experience of the entire church's uh, history to help us to understand and interpret the Bible. And we need the help of scholars, too. Scholarship is a very important role in interpreting the Bible because it was written by a lot of different authors a long time ago in different time periods, different settings. So it, this historical scholarship is very, very helpful. So it's always good as Catholics to read the Bible with a commentary, with some kind of guidance. And I, I think that there's been some really nice American uh, Bible, Bible aficionados or scholars, if you will, who have been hard at work producing some, some good commentaries. Uh, and I recommend this Ignatius Catholic Study Bible. It's just the New Testament. They're working on the Old Testament. And I find this to be pretty reliable, theologically sound, and uh, respectful of the tradition, and just kind of got a, it's got a good overall balance. So you know, this is a recommendation. None of this is required. And then uh, there's a number of books that I have in the back of my mind that are helping me kind of guide us all through this lesson, but probably the most basic and the kind of, the, in a certain way, the most fun out of them all is this one by um, John Bergsma, uh, who teaches at, I can't remember where, I think he might teach at Steubenville, I don't know, I can't remember where he teaches, but anyways, it's a, a really, really basic introduction to the, to the whole Bible, it's basically what we're going to be doing here, and it's kind of clever, and it's, it's kind of funny and fun, uh, he's got a good sense of humor, and he has all these stick figure drawings, and uh, you know, I might indulge in some of the stick figure drawings, and you'll see what we mean when we get into them. Um, when I was a kid, we would, when I was doing different religious education stuff as a child, we were made to do like you know, cut out smiley faces and all this stuff. And when we were in seminary, my priest friends and I, seminary friends and I, we, we vowed that we would never, never ever do any kind of felt cutting of felt or anything of that sort. But here I am, I'm, I'm reneging already on my word. I'm going to have you guys draw stick figures. We'll see. We'll see. Um, 
So I saw, I recommend this book. It's a good book. And if you want, you can also call the um, you call the rectory, and we can get a list of people. We can place an order for you too if you're if you're not super savvy with the internet or what have you. What's the name of the book, Father? It's called uh, Bible Basics for Catholics. John Bergsman. Let me write his name down for you guys. And revisited and revisited, and at first it might seem like, okay, so what's the relevance, or how how do these themes unify the Bible? And you might not see it, but if you stick with it and you keep reading the different passages, you go over and thinking about it, you'll start to see the whole. I, I believe you'll start to see the whole Bible, both Old and New Testament, start to really become unified in a, in a quite uh, remarkable way. So these are just basically some of the themes or what I call thematic clusters that we'll be dealing with over the course of the academic year. And there's, there's more, actually. But these are kind of some of the main ones. All right, so you have the first one I already talked about, the economy of salvation, how God runs the cosmos as a wise manager of a household. And they also use another phrase, which is very interesting. The church fathers and our ancient and medieval theologians, they use the word uh, pedagogy. Pedagogy is, uh, if anybody here has got any background in teaching, pedagogy is a method of teaching. It's a style or um, an approach or technique of teaching. And you can say, so this teacher's got good pedagogy, meaning he's he or she's got a good method or style of teaching, or the pedagogical skill of that person was horrible, whatever, because you're saying that they're a bad teacher. So within God's government and management of the cosmos, it's also a big school classroom. So the, so the cosmos is like a classroom, and God is teaching humanity. And he took a long time to do it, but it's little by little by little by little. He can't reveal and give us all truth all at once, unless it's really in the person of Christ. I guess that would be the one exception, is that Christ is all truth all at once. But even that, you know, you have to unpack that, because the person of Christ is a great mystery. So the cosmos is a great classroom, and God is teaching humanity little by little, and there's a, so there's a historical progression of God's lessons of his pedagogical Endeavor, if you will, with, with humanity. And we're going to be going through the different stages or what they call dispensations of God's salvation history. And we're going to begin with the first man, with Adam. We're going to talk about Noah, uh, and then Abraham, and then Moses, and then David, and then finally our Lord Himself, Christ Jesus, who is the fulfillment of of all of those figures that I just have mentioned, those five figures. So all those five figures are are lessons, they're preparations for the final exam, which is the incarnation of God Himself in the person of Christ. So uh, that would be another concept that you slip under economy. Then you've got St. Augustine, and St. Augustine wrote one of the great masterpieces in the uh, early 5th century called The City of God. And he takes that 
uh, line, the city of God, from a psalm. And it'll, the psalms multiple times talk about the city of God. It's a reference to Jerusalem. But uh, as all the scriptures, as in all the scriptures, there are there's a spiritual meaning as well as a literal meaning to, to them. So the psalms might be referring to Jerusalem, literally, but they're also referring to our heavenly destination, that we're all destined to be citizens of this great city. Uh, and in the epistle to the Hebrews, it's this great city of God is referred to as this maker and builder is God and it has foundations. And then in the last book of the Bible, you see the city of God coming down from heaven and it's got foundations like a house. So it's like a cross between a house and a city. It's kind of a, an interesting image. And uh, so you have this idea of the city of God, and Augustine writes on this very extensively, but he talks about two cities. There's the city of God, but then there's the city of man. And the city of God is built on the love of God, and the city of man is built on the love of self. That's human beings, unfortunately, having gone their own way and their own sin, having collapsed in on themselves, and not open to uh, the infinite divinity that is God. That's the tragedy. So there's kind of a, you know, there's a joyful ending, but there's a tragedy too. There's heaven and there's hell. There's both aspects. And we're going to trace those two lineages, those two families from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. And you'll see that the the city of man, unfortunately, uh, will end up persecuting the city of God. So that's how it works. Um, You have the seed of the woman. Uh, The woman is a symbol of this elect elect people of God uh, Eve the church the blessed virgin Mary you know this, the phrase, this, the figure of the woman is all throughout the Bible and then at the, the last book of the Bible you have the woman revealed to us in chapter uh, in the apocalypse chapter 12 but then you have also this this scarlet this this prostitute who rides this beast and she's dressed in scarlet and she's a symbol of the city of man and she and her members, her children they persecute the city of God and the, the woman with the crown of twelve stars and Our Lady plays into it. it's all very very profound stuff so those will be something that we're tracing through, we'll talk about the idea of a covenant and how important the covenant is in Exodus uh, when the when the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai to receive for for Moses to go up to Mount Sinai to receive the law, Moses comes down and he's ready to make a covenant with the people. It's a very profound part. I think it's in Exodus 24, and he has an altar, and he has all these young men come up, and they slaughter these animals and they do these sacrifices on this altar, and then. Um, there's all the words of the covenant that have been revealed by God to Moses and they're written down in a book. And Moses takes the blood of the, of, from the animals and he sprinkles it on the altar, which is a symbol of God. And he sprinkles it on the book of the covenant, which is another symbol of God. And then he sprinkles it on the people. And he talks about the blood of this covenant. And what is happening is that that blood is unifying God and his people and they're making them one family. 
Okay? So a covenant makes the two members who make that covenant into a single family. And that's the idea of what a covenant is. And you'll see that all throughout the Bible. And then the fulfillment of that covenant is in the Mass and the holy sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary and then the representation of the sacrifice of Calvary at the Mass. And so this is the words of consecration of the priest says, this is the blood of the covenant poured out for you. So in that covenant, we unify with God and God unifies with us. And we enter into a deep, profound communion and, and a marriage, really. A transcendent and eternal marriage, covenant between us and God through Christ on the cross and through uh, our participation in the Eucharist. So that'll be other another kind of theme that we talk about is the idea of covenants. And then we've got uh, I've written this Latin word. Now who was afraid of the Latin? Terry, you were afraid of Latin. Sorry. Okay, there'll be minimal amounts of Latin in this class. Okay, minimal amounts. So you've got this concept of the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei. It's the image of God. So in Genesis chapter 1, the very first verse, uh, chapter of the Bible, in verse 28, I think it's verse 28, it's probably, I think it's like 26, 27, 28, God says, let us make man in our image. So in the image of God, he made him, uh, male and female, he made them. So what is the image of God? This is going to be something we're going to return to again and again and again. And we're going to see that Jesus Christ himself is the image of God. We're made we're made in the image of God, but Jesus is the image of God, the eternal image of God, who became a human being to restore the image of God that was lost, that our first the first parents lost in the original sin. Uh, so that'll be something else we'll return to again and again. Uh, let's see here. The people of God across both testaments. Now I often find that Christians have a real hard time with the Old Testament. There are lots of things in it that you don't get. Lots of violence. Lots and lots and lots of violence. All throughout the Old Testament. Um, I think that's a big stumbling block for people. There's questions about what is this historical or is this a myth or is this legend? So we'll address those questions too. Not first. We're going to kind of wait on those sorts of issues till we see the theology and the thematic unity of the Bible before we address more of the kind of questions of historicity and the question and the questions of like the violence in the Old Testament. Um, so that notwithstanding, I really hope that if, if any of you stick with us throughout the course of this whole academic year, that you come to absolutely love the Old Testament and you see how important it is and how relevant it is to the New Testament and to our lives as Christians. And how we're part of a big family. Remember I talked about this concept of covenant, how we've entered into the family of God through the blood of the covenant. We are now members of God's family and God's household and God's city. Uh, but we have fellow citizens. We are members of the household of the saints. And so we are of the communion of the saints. And the communion of the saints transcends all human generations. Not transcends, but it goes across all human generations from the beginning of time, I'm sorry, from the beginning of humanity all the way until today. And so my hope is that, and I, I have a great devotion, for example, to Abraham. I mean, it sounds funny, but I have a great devotion to Elijah. I love the Old Testament saints. And I hope that 
at the end of this academic year, people who have stuck throughout the, the, this, this series of classes can really also have that love for Old Testament saints as well as the New Testament saints and that we can say that they are our fathers. I find that to be so important. Uh, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says to the Christian audience that he's going to, all our fathers were under the clouds and passed through the sea. And he's referring to the children of Israel who were liberated from Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. And St. Paul, as a Christian, writing to Christians, is saying, our fathers. So all these old, the Old Testament people of God, they are us and we are them. We're unified with them. We're in one communion with them. So and I find that to be really important, especially for there's not a lot of young people here, but I especially find that with young people have a loss, a sense of family, uh, just the whole concept of community and communion is really being um, erased and evacuated in, in contemporary culture. And you grow up in one place, and, you know, of course, families, there's lots of trouble, family trouble today, and people separate, and mom's here, and dad's there, or maybe you don't know your dad, and you live there, and then you go to school in another part of the city, and then you work over in another part of America, and everybody's, you know, there's a kind of a fracturing of family. And I really feel that as a Christian, it's so healing uh, and redeeming for that individual Christian to really come to the place where they can say, I've got a huge family. I've got a huge family, and it goes back hundreds, hundreds, thousands of years. Um, so that would be another thing that I'd like to talk about. And then, well, let's see, what time is it? 7.25, we're going to do all right. Uh, well, first of all, before I maybe cover two more topics and then we start, we actually start our study. Is there any thoughts or, uh, you guys maybe are a little shy right now, but are such that if you don't, if you really are not interested in, in the truth, and you're not interested in pursuing the truth, you know, you're not going to put the effort into reading the Bible. You're not going to be. You're not going to put the effort into trying to kind of dig deeper. And you're going to get stuck on the surface. You're going to read a few pages, and you're going to go, "Oh my gosh, I don't understand any of this." Or you're going to find something that sounds crazy, like all these. You know, there's there's some pretty explicitly weird things in the in the Old Testament. Lots of sexual things, tons of violence, and just things that could really put people off. But I believe if you stick with the Bible and you keep reading, you keep reading, you put the effort in, and you pray first and foremost, you pray to God to open your mind and your heart, you'll start to see this incredible wisdom and intelligence that unifies at a deeper substructural level of the scriptures. It's become so unified and uh, you just say to yourself, oh my gosh, it's just divine wisdom that is that has authored this incredible book. But if you're not willing to go deeper, you're just going to be alienated from the Bible and just say, forget about it. Uh, and you're kind of going to give up. So, here's another so another interesting uh, thing here. Okay, so you've got this uh, second to last major bullet point here on, on my front page. And it's got three things right in a row. The divine counsel... Divine anthropomorphism, that's a big word, right? I don't want to scare you with big words. And then you got this other one, human deification. Now, uh, the divine counsel, 
what is that? It's a very interesting phenomenon. When you read the Old Testament in certain passages, God is speaking in the plural to celestial beings or something. It's very mysterious. You don't know exactly what it is, and it's right from the beginning. In fact, God says, let us make man in our image. He speaks in the plural, first person plural. What is this plural? Okay. And then when Adam and Eve sin in, in Genesis chapter 3, God says, ooh, behold, man has become like one of us. Like one of us. Who is it? What's the plural going on there? And then in Genesis chapter 11, uh, with the Tower of Babel, the story of the Tower of Babel, God says, let us go down and see what they're doing. So God's speaking. And if this is, happens all throughout the Old Testament, and uh, it's kind of strange. What is going on there? So that the scholars refer to that as the divine council. And how, under, how to understand that is something we're going to be kind of digging into. Okay. And my thesis is that eventually what this is all about is that it's, first of all, the revelation of the Trinity. And in some one aspect, it's the revelation of the Trinity. But maybe more, more clearly, it's the revelation of the communion of saints. And that it's... There's angelic beings that God created from the beginning who are with Him, who are with Him, and who are responsible for the government of the world. They're His sort of sub-managers of this cosmic managerial project we call creation. And the angels are involved in all of that. And then we as human beings are called to enter into the ranks of that divine communion, uh, that divine council, that communion of holy ones, communion of the angels and saints. So that's the, that's kind of where we're heading, all right? So I'll give you a little uh, foretaste. So you got this concept of divine council. Then you've got this other concept here, divine anthropomorphism. Well, what's that? So does anybody know another Greek word here? Does anybody know what Greek words anthropos is? Okay, so you've got different English words that are derived from this, like anthropology, paleoanthropology. What else have we got? What other English words come from that? Anthropology is the name of it. Just anthropos is a Greek word that means man. That's all. It means human being. So when you have, you have these various passages and all throughout the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament, everywhere you find God is presented to us in very human terms. And so the biblical scholars talk about there's divine anthropomorphism. God is, talks about his hands, talks about the eyes of God, the heart of God. Um, but we we come to understand from the totality of God's revelation that God is incorporeal, meaning He doesn't have a body. God doesn't have a body like us. And so, what does that mean for God to have hands and eyes and arms, all this language, okay? So we're going to talk about divine anthropomorphism, and ultimately, I believe that that whole Old Testament picturing forth of God in human terms is fulfilled in the New Testament when God actually becomes a human being. When he takes up into his divine nature, a fully human nature, in the womb of the Blessed Mother. So divine anthropomorphism of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And uh, also we've got this final category, human deification. Now, I'll talk about grace from the beginning to the end. You know, grace is this quality 
that is supernatural, that inheres in our soul, and that takes our created human nature and elevates it and brings it closer to God and brings it into union with God, with the divine nature. And it likens us to God. And it makes us, in a certain sense, able to be recognized by God. It makes us in His image, or remakes us in His image. It makes us His son or His daughter. That's what grace does for us. And so, uh, human deification is man becoming like God. There's a very important um, proverb, if you will, or maxim from a, an ancient theologian by the name of St. Athanasius. He says, God became man so that man could become God. Now we have to define that. God is always a distinct, infinite you know, uh, being t- completely separate from any created nature, including our human created nature. But it's that mystery of grace that likens us to God by which we can say we're deified, we're made God-like. Okay? So this theme of being made like God is going to be recurrent over and over again. And there's a right way to understand human deification, there's a wrong way to understand it. So that's another issue we'll be addressing. Okay? Um... And then finally, I think maybe the final thing I'll talk about here is this final bullet point is the sacramental economy. So and I got a quote from the catechism of the Catholic Church there. And what we'll see is that in the Old Testament, not only do we see all of these foreshadowings of the incarnation of Jesus Christ all throughout the Old Testament, almost on every page. I mean, really, if you're if you're very, very keen and you're immersed in the tradition, there's a reference to Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. But there's also prophetic foreshadowings of the church, the Christian church, and the Christian sacraments. Baptism and the Eucharist in particular, but all the sacraments, especially baptism and the Eucharist. It's all throughout the Old Testament. So we'll be talking about how there's all these images and foreshadowings of the sacraments and the sacramental economy in the Old Testament. So when we, maybe we'll take a break um, unless you guys got some questions, take a break. And when we start again, let's start at, say, 7.45, and we'll actually just start our first kind of study. I think you could probably find some scholars use these terms in this way, but it, regardless of that, I'm going to use these terms this way. There are, I would say, two major sort of temporal temporal divisions. Okay, and you're going to talk about historical times. One, one category will be called historical times. And then the other category I'm going to call prehistory. Now, historical times are characterized by the fact that you have either documents 
written by human beings, or you have archaeological remains from the things that human beings have built. And historical times, uh, in the past, the great age of archaeology was the 19th century. It started up in about 1820, 1830, 1840, 1850. And even Napoleon was engaged in, in a lot of archaeological endeavors. And, and uh, um, you know, So from the 19th century on was the great age of archaeology. Archaeological endeavors were taking place for hundreds of years before that, actually. Uh, in Rome and the Vatican, there was archaeological stuff going on in the 16th century. But for the most part, it was the 1800s when archaeology really started getting going. And, uh, and ancient history in particular. And the amount of historical increase of our knowledge of ancient history in the past hundred years has been astronomical. Absolutely astronomical. It's absolutely flabbergasting. It's remarkable. If you, the kind of knowledge that we, the humanity and its collective wisdom had in the year 1880 about ancient history was pretty good. But the difference between their knowledge then and now is a, is a difference of kind. We know so much more. And it's just simply from a lot of patient study of historians and archaeologists working over the course of 120 years. That's all it is. It's just them building on each other's work and trying to make sense out of ancient history. And so we know a lot about all these ancient uh, Middle Eastern civilizations, like the Sumerians and the Akkadians and, uh, and the Egyptians. Those are some of the oldest civilizations in the world. And so we've got uh, mostly archaeological evidence, the remains of tombs and cities and things like that. But we also have documents and writing, writings from. And so we're going back about 4,000 years, say, before Christ. This is very rough. This is very, very rough. So about 4,000 years before our Lord. We have a lot of knowledge from that time period. Now, that's what I'm referring to as historical times. Historical times are times that we have pretty good concrete evidence from that we can kind of piece together some sort of historical framework. Prehistory is pretty much anything before that. Okay? And in the Bible, we have pretty much this. This is Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Would be what they're... they're historical in nature, the events that took place in Genesis 1 through 11, I believe, I would argue, you might have to argue with this, there's probably some scholars that would disagree, at least some Catholic scholars would disagree, of course there's many. Scholarship is broad. You've got atheist scholars, you've got believing scholars, and the whole spectrum. So, I'm talking about with Catholic scholars. There's Catholic scholars who would probably disagree with me, but uh, I, I think, I, I would argue, that to be true to our tradition and to what we know by Revelation, we have to say that Genesis 1 through 11 is in some sense historical. It deals with real historical events. How to interpret the exact historicity of these events is, is, is kind of an issue and it really takes quite a bit of discussion. I'm not going to get into that now. So for the most part, when I speak about the events of Genesis 1-11, through 11, I'm going to assume a certain amount of historicity that there were first two human beings, Adam and Eve. When did they live? Let's see, these are the questions. How old is the human race? Did they really live 950 years old? You know, what did the flood, was, was Noah's flood, did it kill all human beings? Did it cover all the earth? What, these are the questions, and they're all legitimate questions. 
Uh, and uh, I think the nature why there's a kind of obscurity and a difficulty to that to these events in this part of the Bible is because we're talking about prehistory here. There isn't any these events if they took place, which I believe they did. There's not there's not any evidence. There's no human documents. There's nothing like that. All right. So we know about them primarily through the revealed Word of God. Okay. So how to interpret them historically? It's a big discussion. All right. But there's going to be a basic minimalistic kind of at least historicity to to the events. Whereas from Genesis 12 onwards to I mean to the rest of the Bible, you're clearly solidly within historical time periods. So Abraham is from Ur of the Chaldean. Chaldean is a little bit of an anachronism, but he was from Ur uh, in, in Mesopotamia. And he lived probably around 2000 BC, 1900 BC, around that time period. You know, we can't nail it down to a, a certain date. And there's a lot of indirect evidence that supports the historicity of, of what you read about in his life. You know, there's documents that talk about Abraham, but there's things that make what's described about his life very plausible, that fit into what else we know about that historical time period. And then he comes to the Holy Land and he meets the he enters into the land of Canaan. We've got all these tribes. Tons of, we've got tons of information about all of these peoples. It's quite a remarkable store of knowledge that we've developed over the past 150 years. And so Genesis 12 onwards, from Abraham on, is very solidly within historical times. And then from David, who is about 1000 BC onwards, it's all the more historical. And then from the New Testament on, it's extremely historical. So we, the kind of knowledge that we have of the first century AD, the times that our Lord Jesus Christ lived in, we have immense, immense amounts of knowledge. And we can date things to like within the day uh, in some things. Okay. Uh, just a question. Sure, sure. I just want to go a lot of people comment that I don't know all these theories that might be solid. A common denominator in, in, in the events in the, the Yeah, in the beliefs in, in the events. From the <coughs> beliefs, is there like at least one common? Well, uh, there's certainly a thematic unifying uh, common denominator. And that's kind of what I'm going to be focused on. So I'm not going to address a lot of the questions of historicity. We can kind of wait later for those, because those are important. As Christians... We, we believe that God is the creator of the natural world and he created our intelligence. So when we make an act of faith, it's a human act, and it's got to be, it's not, it's got to be, it can't be a contrary to reason. Okay, so we can't be believing a bunch of crap, all right, as Christians. It doesn't work that way. And God wouldn't ask us to do that. It would be imprudent for us to make any kind of act of faith that was just clearly irrational. All right. So all of these questions about historicity are very important, and it's important because we're, we're intelligent, rational beings. This is how God made us. God is the author of our brains and our minds, as well as the author of our faith. So our faith and our brains are not going to be at odds with each other. So all those questions are really, really valid and legitimate, and I've studied them for years, and we can talk about them. But what I want to do is focus on more like the thematic and theological unity of Scripture. So maybe that would be the common denominator Genesis 1 through 11, what you find is it's really a, it's a sad story of corruption, really. Okay? Because what happens is God created the world and it's good, and then it starts falling down from there. Okay? So you have the original sin, and then you have the first murder. Okay? So man is made in the image of God, and then you have someone kill his brother. You know, Cain kills Abel. And, uh, and you have the 
It's implied, I think, polygamy, the institution of polygamy is not according to the original intention, so polygamy starts to come about. And then from the time of, in Genesis chapter 6, with Noah's flood, God is grieved that he has made the world. It pains him to his heart. And so again, you have this anthropomorphic language, God have his heart, and God, oh, I repent, I, I am sorry that I made man on the earth, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe them out with this flood, and I'm going to begin again with a new beginning of the human race, a new Adam, as it were, in Noah, in the person of Noah, because Noah is righteous. Uh, so then you have corruption in the earth. And then, uh, even after, there's a kind of a recreation that takes place after the flood. There's a, there's a sort of a new genesis that takes place. And God commands Noah and his sons, just like he commanded Adam, uh, to multiply and fill the world and reproduce it and, and conquer it. And, uh, and as soon as you know, this new genesis takes place, Noah gets drunk. Okay, he drinks too much alcohol and he's drunk and he's uh, uh, unconscious. And one of his sons uncovers his nakedness and there's and then he curses one of his sons. So you, uh, you have all this curse again. So there's this this uh, promise of hope of a redeemer, but it's in the midst of human corruption, depravity, and curse and the curse of the earth. And that's the and then the Tower of Babel. So then the talk humanity now. God has commanded humanity to spread out, to multiply, and then humanity, they say, well, let us go and get together, and we're going to build a tower to heaven. Okay, and so there's a kind of a hubris or a pride. Human beings are going to pull all their resources together and be kind of in the face of God, independent of God. And so then God destroys the the project by dividing their tongues. Okay, so there's this division. So anyways, the one unifying theme throughout Genesis 1 through 11 is kind of the depravity and corruption of humanity. And then, so then the stage is set for the appearance of Abraham, who's going to be the, the, the chosen prophet who will basically give birth to the chosen people of God, which will eventually, you know, uh, produce the Messiah, who's going to be the Savior, the seed of the woman that was talked about all the way in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman uh, will, will crush the head of the serpent and overcome the evil that's come into the world. So, all right, so let's uh, open up to Genesis chapter 1. And, uh, oh, here's another thing here by way of housekeeping. I'm going to have designated readers. So, because um, I found that people are really sometimes afraid to read in public. So, I'm going to get the hands. There's hands out there. I know every group has got hands. You know, people who like to showboat and all that kind of stuff. I'm one of them. You know, I was sitting right here, I'd be one of the showboaters. So, we'll have to... Uh, Who's a showboater? I, I was going to pick someone, but you know, uh, I think you guys know who you are. No, I'm, I'm joking. Anybody's courageous and wants to do an act of service for the community. Okay. All right. So we've got, that's right, we've got Fran. If I put it that way, right? Okay, so we'll have, uh, Fran will be a designated reader. Who else? Okay. Daddy. Okay. Daddy, okay. Okay, who else is, who else is full of? Sentiments of selfless Lord, service. Lord. Okay, Lord. Okay. It's all the ladies that are all about selfless service, not the guys. Verses 26 to uh, yeah, 126 to 28. How about that? Then God said. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion 
over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the cattle, and over all the wild animals, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground. God created man in his image. In the divine image, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, saying, Be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things that move on the earth. Very good. So this is the crown of creation. Humankind is really the crown of God's creative activity. And uh, this is a little way that we can try to think maybe put some dust Just to kind of give you a little schematic understanding of the I'm getting this from John Bergsma. I thought it was kind of it's it's a little funny, but uh, I think it works pretty good. So he, what Bergsma does is he takes this little drawing and divides the square here into six sections. Right? So we have one, two, three, and then let's see here. What does he do? I think four comes after that. Oh. Yeah, one, two, three, and then four comes down here. Four, and then five, and then six. Now this is how to understand... The six days of creation, all right? Uh, in the first day, God uh, makes, he separates the light from the darkness, okay? So if we can just kind of, you know, that symbolizes the darkness, that symbolizes the day. In the, in the second day, let's see here. So basically what we've got here is time. Alright, that's, that's basically like the first thing that God makes. Now on the second day, uh, He creates basically space. So there's a little bit of ocean here, and you've got some clouds, a little bit of wind trails here, okay. And then on the third day, He creates, so let's see here. Time, space, and then you've got habitat. So you've got the little ocean, and then you've got land with a tree coming out of it. Okay? So there's a little tree with some apples hanging out. <laughs> Alright. So you've got time, space, habitat. Day one, day two, day three. Now in day four, he creates the sun and the moon. So the sun inhabits, see how it corresponds to time? It inhabits this day, and then the moon inhabits the night with the stars. So you've got all these stars along with the moon. Now these mark time. It's by the sun and the moon and the stars that we are able to measure time. So there's the time was created on the on the first day, but then on the fourth day there's a nice parallel agreement with that first category, and you have all of these different sort of furniture that inhabit and demarcate time. And then on the fifth day, 
He has uh, fish. Alright, so let's see if I can grow some fish. So now fish inhabit the uh, the oceans. And then finally, on the sixth day, you have not just the trees and the shrubs and the bushes, but you've got man. Okay, and you've got animals. So I'm going to draw a little snake here. And I'm going to have, he has a giraffe. I don't know if I can pull off a giraffe. <laughs> So there's so you've got animals and human beings inhabiting the habitat. So you see how the days correspond with each other. Now again, again, leaving aside the questions of are these literal six days that got sort of organized in the cosmos and, and, and six solar days, that's a legitimate question. We can address that later on. And then uh, very interesting is Bergsma, I don't I don't have enough space here, is he puts a little steeple on a, on this structure. Okay, and uh, it's not a good drawing here. But he makes it a temple. Okay? And so this structure of the cosmos is a temple, a cosmic temple. God, when he created the world, there, uh, he created it as uh, like a temple. And uh, so how would we address it? So if you go on my sheet here, let's look at Adam, all right? Now, Adam has these certain identities to him. Alright? He is made as a priest. Okay, so if you look at the main bullets there. As a priest, as a prophet, as a king, as a son, as a husband or bridegroom, and then finally, as a father. Okay, so now you say, how did how did Adam how, how is he portrayed? How does Scripture portray him as a priest? Okay, this is where we start to get subtle. Well, first and foremost, Genesis chapter one envisions the universe as kind of a temple. How do we know that? Well, here are some considerations why you might be led to believe that this is actually what the sacred Scripture is communicating to us. So I've got all these sub points that I make here. So creation as a whole is a temple. Uh, the six days and the Sabbath. Number one, the language of creation that we read about in Genesis chapter 1, uh, it's like or it resembles the language that uh, of Moses building the tabernacle in the wilderness. So if you go to the book of Genesis, and you go to chapter 39, verses 32, 42 to 43, I've got those written down there, and you compare that language, the specific words, the pattern of the words, the order of the words, Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 3, you can see that here's Moses who was commanded by God. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai, he received the law, but he also received specific architectural plans to build a tabernacle. A tabernacle within which God would dwell. And this tabernacle was, a, was essentially a tent, a very, very glorious and beautiful tent that was set up with, you know, some had rigid parts of wood that were overlaid with gold and precious metals. 
and then there was some very, very nice different kinds of animal skins that covered it. And the Ark of the Covenant, which again represented God's presence, was hidden away mysteriously in the depth of this tabernacle. And when the children of Israel would travel throughout from, from Egypt and through the wilderness and into the Holy Land, they would take down the tent, the priests would take down the tent, and they would uh, kind of fold things up and they would carry it on their backs. And they would carry it in their journey. So it was a kind of a moving temple. It was a space within which the sacrificial cult was exercised. And uh, and God had a dwelling place. He had a, a meeting point for him to be in communion with his people. That's what the tabernacle is. But at the end of when uh, you know God gives Moses instructions to the tabernacle, and then um, when he when Moses goes and he builds the tabernacle, so there's two accounts of it, and this is the kind of stuff that makes people nod and fall asleep. Because God gives very long detailed instructions about this tabernacle. And then and then Moses builds the tabernacle and it basically just recounts everything God just told him in like duplicate form. But the difference is at the end of Moses building the tabernacle, it looks a whole lot like uh, the end of chapter, it's the beginning of chapter 2 when God says, and God saw, you know, rested, he saw all that he made, all the furniture that he made in the making of it, so forth and so on. All this language is a language parallel between God creating the world in Genesis chapter 1 and Moses constructing the tabernacle. So that's one hint that allows us to understand that the cosmos itself is a sacred space within which God is going to meet mankind. And that's why he made the world. So all of the material and vegetable uh, reality on all the animal reality in this world, it's ordered towards human being, which is the high point of creation, and more importantly, that community and that divide, that union between God and man. It's all the uh, architecture of a big temple within which God and man are going to come together and dwell and meet. So, also, in uh, another point here, that way, how we can say that the world is a, tab- is, a, is a temple, some scriptures speak of creation as a temple explicitly. So, Psalm 78, 69. Let's, let's turn to that psalm. So, actually, I just looked at it. So, I hope that's correct. Uh, what did I say? 78, 69. Now, Arlene, you've got a different enumeration in your sign. Because you're using the, you've got, it's a Vulgate base. Okay, so who is our, so let's see, your body translation is, where are I that's a long sound. <laughs> yep, seventy-eight, sixty-nine. Yep, Psalm seventy-eight, sixty-nine. Just one verse. So let's see here. We've got another designated driver reader. <laughs> So we got Debbie. Debbie, why don't you just read that one verse? We're all going to be quiet and listen to you. One verse. Just the one verse. I hope I've got the right one. He built his shrine like the heavens, like the earth which he founded forever. Very good. So now there's an explicit reference. So God is, the psalmist is comparing the creation of the world to uh, the tabernacle, to the temple. So there's an explicit now, you know, biblical comparison between the world and 
and uh, this temple imagery. And then I guess Psalm 148, we won't read the whole thing. Let me just skim it and see if there's anything that stick out here. Psalm 148. Yes, Psalm 148. Yeah. Okay, so Psalm 148 is basically a huge uh, act of worship on the part of creation. All right, angels praise him, all his angels praise him, sun and moon praise him, shining stars, you waters above the heavens. So now all this language from Genesis chapter one is being used as this great act of worship. Okay, and then of course maybe some other points to point out. Uh, the seventh day is the Sabbath day. Okay, so Genesis 1, everything that God's doing is all lining up to the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is set apart for divine worship. So, all, it's as if to say, all of time is ordered around and... towards our worship of God. And that time where we can set down our own works and we can enter into the works of God and appreciate what He has done and rest in Him. Uh, and then I guess, this I don't know this myself, but uh, from what scholars say, that in many other ancient writings that are contemporaneous with the writings of the Old Testament, it's clear that people consider the whole universe as a kind of temple for divine worship. So you're also you're also looking at a, a convention that many of the ancient peoples regarded the universe that way, and so the biblical authors are just sort of they're writing like the other ancient authors too. Okay, now uh, let's go to um, let's go to the Garden of Eden as a temple. Let's go. So, so we'll have another reader here, and let's go to Genesis chapter two. Have Lori read Genesis chapter 2. Why don't you read verses 10 through 17? A river rises in Eden to water the garden. Beyond there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that winds through the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is excellent. Bedellium and Lapis of Lui are also there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is one that winds all through the land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It is the one that flows east of Asher. The fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God then took the man and settled him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and care for it. The Lord God gave man this order. You are free to eat from any of the trees of the garden, except the tree of knowledge of good and bad. From that tree you shall not eat. The moment you eat from it, you are surely doomed to die. Very good. Now, there's a few things we can point out here. Something kind of interesting. 
is uh, these rivers that come out of Eden. Okay, let's let's try to remember these rivers that come out of Eden. There are questions about geographically where is Eden, and actually, again, like I said, with this increased knowledge of uh, ancient history, it seems like we can actually locate this location pretty well. Um, the the one the, the the red herring for the older biblical commentators, they thought Cush was Ethiopia, and uh, but. And, it, and Ethiopia is called Cush in other parts of the Bible. But we, I guess we know now from other discoveries and more historical knowledge and, and increase of archaeological uh, knowledge that Cush, there's a land that's also called Cush. It's right around the origin of the Tigris and Euphrates as well. So this is describing some area around the Tigris and Euphrates that can be pretty much placed on the map. That's really kind of a side question. Because what I, I want to focus on is just the concept of the rivers themselves. So you have this... Uh, garden and it's a paradise and the first man is placed in that garden and there's these rivers that flow forth out of it and then divide off and then they supply water for all of this different territory in the, the in the kind of the uh, Mediterranean basin or I'm sorry the uh, Mesopotamian basin and then it also mentions gold and all these different precious stones so remember this imagery remember this imagery rivers precious stones and then a garden, and, and, and the first man being placed in that garden. Um, I believe there's a lot of depth, a lot of incredible, very, very spiritual, deep, mystical sense and meaning to all of those, all of this. Okay. Uh, but I'll just draw your attention to one line, and that is verse 15. It says, "The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it." That's my translation. There's two Hebrew words that are used. Um, I think it's uh, avad and uh, shamar. Avad means to work. It's translated till in my translation, like a, you know, you've got like a hole and you're tilling the ground. You know, cultivate. Okay, so your translation says cultivate. All right. In a more literal sense, the word avad means work or serve. That's a key one. Serve. That can actually mean serve. And then, um, and then my translation is keep it is the second word. Now the word keep is uh, shamar, and that is to guard, okay, or to oversee. Now those two words are not paired together very often in the Old Testament. The next time they're paired together, where they appear together in that order, in fact. It's in the book of Numbers when God is describing the work that the priests do in the tabernacle. Okay? So when you have these two words put together, there's a there's a priestly connotation to it. It rings it has a priestly meaning to it. So the priests are set in the tabernacle to serve the divine service and to guard and to oversee and to keep it and to take care of the temple and the sacred priestess. Okay, so again, there's another hint that not just the cosmos is this, like a temple, but that the Garden of Eden itself is this sort of a sacred space. It's a temple. Okay? Uh, and then let's go to Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14. Ezekiel is one of the major prophets. And he's going to be after the Psalms, if you can find the Psalms. You've got Psalms, Proverbs, then you got Syrac, and then you've got Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel. We're going to go to Ezekiel 28. Right. 
we're in Ezekiel 28, and I want to, I'm going to read verses 11 through 19. Now, there, this is a very, very deep passage, extremely profound mystical sense in all of this, okay? So listen very deeply with your heart and with your mind as well. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Carnelian, topaz, and jasper, chrysolite, beryl, and onyx, sapphire, carbuncle, and emeralds, and wrought in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. With an anointed guardian cherub, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And the guardian cherub drove you out from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought forth fire from the midst of you. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end. shall be no more forever. Okay, so this is a very intense prophecy, okay? Now, the person that this is talking about, the prophet is prophesying about, is the king of Tyre. Tyre is an island off the coast of the Holy Land, up in the northern region. Uh, and uh, it was it was a very well-fortified, armored uh, city, and it was in a very key point of trade, trade point. And, and Ezekiel was written... Uh, around the year, say, 580 B.C., so about 580 years before Christ. And Tyre was a flourishing city at this time, and it was a point of trade. Uh, everybody's heard of the Phoenicians and how important the Phoenicians were for ancient trade and how uh, the alphabet, our alphabet, comes from the Phoenicians and the Hebrew alphabet and the Latin alphabet and the Greek alphabet all come from the Phoenicians. So the Venetians really kind of trace the Tyre. Now the king of Tyre is being spoken of here, and there is a kind of a tragic fall that the king of Tyre undergoes. What's happening here, though, is something else. I, I believe, okay, in our tradition from the earliest times, uh, our ancient fathers, Catholic fathers, they interpreted this as having to do with the devil, with the fall of Satan from, from heaven. Okay? And uh, I believe that it is what it's about, that we can learn. I believe it's a prophecy against the king of Tyre, but there's other things going on. In fact, I think there's three separate issues that are being revealed to us here. I believe it's also talking about the first man. It's talking about Adam. 
Okay? And it's talking about the fall of Satan, it's talking about the fall of Adam, as well as being a denunciation of this particular historical individual, the king of Tyre. Okay? Um, a few things to point out here. Notice right in verse 11, right off the bat, it says, Thus says the Lord God. Now, that's the exact language of Genesis chapter 2, Lord God. And it's kind of rare to pair those two words, Lord and God, together. It's not often. You either have Lord or you have God in the Old Testament. You don't often have Lord God. So there's already this kind of, uh, by the language of the text, it brings us back to Genesis 2. Alright, you were the signet of perfection. This is really key. And it gets into the Imago Dei. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> so it gets into the Imago Dei. A signet ring was something that an ancient king would wear on their finger or they put it on a rope around their neck. Okay? And what they would do is when they would do official, uh, you know, magisterial documents, when they would, you know, uh, write their letters and they wanted to communicate, they'd write the letter, roll it up, and then they would put wax on it to seal it, and then they would impress their ring on it. Okay? And so this seal has got, it's very interesting. Okay? It's got two qualities to it. It's, it's, uh, basically, a re- it's an image. Okay, it's a form, and uh, Adam was a signet ring. Okay, we could say we could talk about the devil. It's about Satan as well as an angel. But let's just focus about Adam. Adam is made in the image of God. So when the king impresses his seal on something, it's the king's image that's being impressed on something. Okay, so you have this connection between the image of God and the seal, the signet of perfection. All right? The image of God in Adam when he was made was perfect at first. And uh, not only is the seal, because to make a seal, it's got to be, there's a passive element to it, right? You have to cast it in the metal. And so it, it takes a form upon itself, just like Adam. But the seal also conveys or transmits an image or a form as well. And so when Adam reproduces in Genesis chapter 5, it says, God, Adam had his head uh, begot Seth who was made in his image, or who was born in his image. Okay, and in his likeness, I think it says as well. So you have this image of God that's in humanity, and it reflects God, and it's also the power by which we transmit that image of God that's in us to others through reproduction, natural reproduction, but also spiritual reproduction. We're all called to be spiritual fathers and mothers. Not all of us are called to be natural mothers and fathers, right? But we're all called to be spiritual mothers and fathers and to transmit the spiritual life of grace, which is the image of God, and to reproduce the image of God in others through our good works, through our Christian witness, right? So that's that original perfection, the signal perfection that was in Adam from the beginning. He was full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Man was made with a very, very strong, powerful, and clear intellect. But after sin, the intellect became darkened. The light of the intellect was darkened. And sin makes us dumb, makes us stupid. We don't understand, because when we sin, we get dumber and dumber and dumber. And because we're born in sin, there's a kind of an intellectual darkness that we have.